chosen generation We've been called for to show His excellence all I require for life, God has given me, and I know who I am. We are a chosen generation. We've been called for to show His excellence. All I require for life, God has given me, for I know who I am. I know who God says I am, what He says I am.
every day Happy Sunday. It's a wonderful thing to know who you are. And even better, it's a wonderful thing to know who you are in Christ. We're going to go right into our moment in history. And today I am going to tell you about a a man by the name of David Brainard. He was born in 1718 and was one of the first missionaries to translate and carry the good news of Jesus to the Native Americans of New Jersey in their own language. And he did this until the day of his death in 1747. His faith and passionate pursuit of God's holiness has inspired countless missionaries such as William Carey, Alderim Judson, and Jim Elliott. His story is being told today to rekindle the beating heart of missions that every Christian should have in the attitude that all of us should absorb, that the love of God be made known to every lost soul on earth. In his early years, David was very careful and serious in following God. However, he once said, I had a very good outside, but my heart was exceedingly sinful. He made a commitment to enter into the ministry, even though he was not a believer. When he was 19, he moved to an inherited farm and read through the entire Bible twice a year and began to see that his religion and legalistic and based upon his own efforts was his whole concept of living. He wrestled with God's sovereignty in his soul and he battered deep depression. He strongly fought with the fact that there was nothing he could do in his own strength to commend himself to God. This all changed one evening before sunset when he was radically transformed by a new vision of God's glory. He found unspeakable joy in letting Jesus be king over his life and the whole earth. That night he determined in his mind to live holy for God so that God's glory could be known. Two months later, Bernard enrolled at Yale and began to prepare himself for a career in ministry. His first year was rough as he dealt with multiple illnesses which caused him to go home. In the fall of 1740, he returned to find that the spiritual atmosphere among the students had drastically changed. Several pastor evangelists from the Great Awakening had spoken to the student body and stirred up their passion and love for Christ. This, however, created tensions between the conservative staff as some of the faculty had been criticized by students in their enthusiasm for the gospel as being unconverted. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards was invited to preach at Yale in hopes that he would stand up for the faculty against the charismatic nature of the students. However, Edwards' sermon completely disappointed the staff since he argued that the awakening among the student body was a real spiritual work in spite of their disfavorable views of the staff. 
This put into action a rule made by the college board that if anyone condemned a staff member as hypocrites or unconverted men, that the student would be expelled immediately. David Bernard was at the top of his class academically, but promptly expelled during the third year. He was overheard by one of the professors that his tutor had no more grace than a chair and that he wondered why the rector did not drop down dead. For for finding students for their evangelistic zeal, David greatly regretted his mistake and apologized. He made several attempts to get back into college, but he was refused entry. Discouraged, Bernard had to rethink his plans in, in becoming a minister. There had been a recent law passed that no one could preach publicly unless they had graduated from Harvard, Yale, or a European university. David began to question his calling to ministry and came to the realization that God must be at work for the glory of his name, even if it best intentions failed. He then accepted that God must have better plans for his life. At this point, he thought of becoming a missionary to the to the Indians. In 1742, David Bernard received his license to preach by Jonathan Dickinson, who later founded Princeton. Dickinson was also a commissioner.
Let us pray. Father God, in the name of your son, Jesus, as we walk proclaiming that we know who we are, we also know, oh God, that we're nothing, absolutely nothing without you. Lord, we thank you for waking us up this morning, oh God. We thank you for keeping us closed in our right mind, oh God. We thank you, O oh God, for granting us another day, another day to get it right, another day to exalt your name. Father God, we ask that you open up the hearts and the souls and the minds of everyone listening to this broadcast today, O oh God. Let them receive your word as intended, O oh God. And Lord, I ask that every piece of flesh within me be shut down and that I only be a vessel to be used by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we give you glory, we give you honor, and we give you praise. Amen. 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 And amen. Good morning. Happy Sunday, everyone. So glad that you thought it not robbery to tune in today. We don't take that for granted at all. We know that there's a lot of options out there. And we thank you for those that have been faithful to Bible deliverance. We thank you. We are venturing into part two of our study of Galatians. Galatians is a New Testament book written by Paul, and it is the letter to the Galatians. And the Galatians were believers who received salvation based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. But they strayed from the foundation of the teachings that led to their receiving salvation. And they began to be drawn back into the practices of religiosity, which had nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven or pleasing God. Now, God is so wonderful. He is magnificent in all that he does. Paul was the perfect man to address the Galatians for such a time that they were in. For he was a devout Jew at one time himself who knew firsthand what it was like to be more committed to the practices, the traditions, and the rituals of religion than to God himself. Paul was so committed to religiosity that he was blinded and didn't recognize when the Savior, the Jews were looking and praying for, actually arrived. Paul was the leader of the pack that ridiculed the teachings of Jesus Christ. Paul was the one who wanted to jail and kill those who followed Jesus' teachings. But then God confronted Paul. Let me tell the story to some and refresh the story in the minds of others. The story comes from the book of Acts and begins right around the ch chapter 9. Yes, we're studying Galatians, hold on, but I need you to understand the underlying and qualifying components of Paul's audacity when he addresses the Galatians. See, Paul, who went by the name of Saul, 
at the time was on his way to Damascus with a letter from the high priest in Jerusalem who gave him authority to arrest anyone who belonged to what was called the way, meaning Christians, those who followed Christ. Paul sought to intentionally oppose the name of Jesus. And no doubt, because he had the support of the high priest, he walked with a false sense of entitlement. You know how it is. And with much arrogance. So much so that in Acts 26, 9-11, Paul says in his own words, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote. Let me give you a little sidebar here. Be careful who you follow. I don't care what their position is, nor what kind of illumination of authority they seem to have. Keep your heart and your will focused on the will and the ways of God. Don't allow distractions to blind you so you don't recognize when God is moving. And when God is telling you to stand down. Let's go back to the road of Damascus. The scripture tells us suddenly a bright light was shown on Saul. So bright that it caused him to fall to the ground. Then Jesus spoke to Saul asking him. Why are you persecuting me? He asked him this in a voice only understood by Paul. Then Saul asked, shivering in fear, I'm sure, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I find the need to pause right here for another sideboard. For all of you who struggle with Jesus being God, Paul had to face this reality in the most shocking and unimaginable way. Notice the voice didn't say, this is God. The voice he heard proclaimed to be Jesus, confirming they are one in the same because only God can create an experience like Paul had that day. Saul recognized that that voice was of someone greater than himself. And when Jesus identified himself, as the very one Saul had been persecuting, one can only imagine the terror that filled Saul's heart. Saul was left speechless, no doubt thinking to himself, oh, I'm a dead man now. In Acts 26, Saul describes Jesus' commission of him as his messenger to the Gentiles which must have amazed Saul, who was the ultimate Gentile-hating Pharisee. But think about the awesomeness of God. 
when trying to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, who better to use than one who walked in that same darkness and who was controlled by that same demonic spirit? This is why we should never be so arrogant, so holy that we look down on someone because of how they are living there now. God may be just allowing them to build on their testimony. Glory to God. You know, they say if you are being bullied, the way to get a bully off your back is to confront the biggest and the baddest and the most revered one in his group. And once you deal with that one, the others become butter in your hands. That is exactly what Jesus did. Paul was the leader of the pack and he went straight to him. The biggest and the baddest and the most revered. And he turned him into butter in his hands. The phrase the Damascus Road experience is used to describe a conversion which is dramatic and startling. Many people receive Christ in life-changing, instantaneous experiences, although many others describe their conversion as a more gradual experience that they take in little by little as they begin to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But either way, both kinds of experiences have several things in common. First, salvation is of the Lord by his will and according to his plan and purpose. And Jesus made it clear to Saul that he had gone his own way for long enough. Now he was to become an instrument in the hands of the master to do his will. Saul's dramatic conversion on the road of Damascus was the beginning of an incredible journey causing God to change his name from Saul to Paul. See, when God gets a hold of you, mm, and when you begin to walk in what he has ordained, you are no longer who you used to be. Your title, your attitude, your arrogance shifts as your heart is renewed, as your mindset is renewed. Paul's experience brought him to have to deal with the Galatians who were slipping into the darkness that he was yanked out of on the road of Damascus. You know, when you are looking for a job, you get your resume together and you, you detail all of your job experience and your relevant talent. Paul's Damascus road experience was his mic drop experience on his resume. See, sometimes God has to let us endure certain experience, not just for us, but so that we become qualified to impact the lives of others. I was talking to my sister-in-law the other day and she was telling me about someone who to hear them tell it, they've never done anything wrong, sin has never been an issue for them. However, this same person professes that they were called by God. My question is to do what? 
If you have no experience, if you have not passed one test, if you have not made and learned from one transgression, why would God use you to go after the loss? To transform unbelievers? And how effective could you possibly be in encouraging those who have lost hope when you have never had a challenge with hope? Don't ever look at your mistakes and your transgressions and dismiss them. Learn from them. Embrace them. And figure out how to elevate them as a testimony to help someone else. People want and need to hear from those who have been where they are and have survived what seems like is going to kill them. In James 5.16, the scripture tells us, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. But why? Why should we confess our sins to one another when folks can't heal us? Because your sins and your failures can be used as lessons and inspirations to guide the path of others. Don't be so afraid to share your testimony and so arrogant you don't want to hear the testimony of others. I am one of those who love to read autobiographies. Okay, I'm a geek. And for one reason only. Because everybody's life can teach you something. Because of Paul's experience, he was able to go to the Galatians and let them know without a shadow of a doubt that they were focusing on the wrong things. Paul's message to the Galatians was get your mind off the laws, off the formalities, off the rituals, off the practices that have nothing to do with your salvation. Paul was transformed by Jesus Christ and began to embrace his teachings and learned of the two greatest commandments, which Jesus outlined in Matthew 22. And you will likely hear several times through our teaching on Galatians. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first of the greatest commandments. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture goes on to tell us all the law. And the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you want to know if a tradition, if a ritual, if a practice is a requirement. These two commands are your measuring rod. One of the most important rituals of the Jewish culture then and now is circumcision. Because of Genesis 17. 10 through 11, which reads, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me 
and you. Again, as we talked about last week, the mandates and the covenants that God made in the Old Testament were very much valid and were done as a means of those in relationship with him to be set apart from those who worshiped other gods. But if we turn to Matthew 5, 17, the scripture reads, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is fulfilling the law was not to debunk the law or deem them as invalid. Jesus came as a means of progression to move us beyond a legalistic mindset and to redirect us to the importance of entering into a relationship with God. We cannot continue to be so stuck on how things used to be the old way, stubborn, that we become like stagnant water, not good for anything. Paul himself addresses the practices of circumcision in Romans 2, 25 through 29, which breaks it down like this. Circumcision, the surgical ritual that marks you as a Jew, is great if you live in accord with God's law. But if you don't, it's worse than not being circumcised. The reverse is also true. The uncircumcised who keep God's ways are as good as the circumcised. In fact, better. Better to keep God's law uncircumcised than to break it circumcised. Don't you see it's not the cut of the knife that makes a Jew. You become a Jew by who you are. It's the mark of God on your heart, not of a knife on your skin that makes you a Jew. And recognition comes from God, not legalistic critics. Read Romans 2 when you get a chance. That was the message translation because, you know, I like to break it down to the lowest common denominator. But note that in Genesis 17 and 11, the scripture closes with, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. God didn't switch out on you. What happened was when he manifested himself in flesh and walked this earth in the body of Jesus, he Upgraded us. Luke 22.20 reads, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying this, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. We've been upgraded. How many of you have ever experienced traveling and, and and something happens and you're upgraded to first class. So you go to check in your hotel room and you had a regular standard room and they upgrade you to a suite. That's what Jesus did. He upgraded us. 
The reason I believe God has directed me to stay in the book of Galatians is because it's time for believers to shut down the mentality that there is something that they can do or that their sacrifices are greater than their level of obedience to God. God's love language is obedience, period. And thanks to Jesus' sacrifice, circumcision, and other rituals of tradition are just personal choices and are neither right or wrong for us to follow out. But they are not a religious gateway into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there are no brownie points nor are there any VIP passes into the kingdom of God. So circumcise, don't circumcise. It's up to you. There is not one single physical act that will secure your salvation. Understand this. You can't have it both ways. Either salvation can be obtained by faith or works. If by faith then works are not required. On the other hand, if salvation can be secured by works, then there would be no reason for faith. It's funny, when someone passes away, their loved ones begin to speak of their place in heaven being secured because they were, quote unquote, a good person. Because they worked faithfully in the church, they gave to charities, or they always had a kind word and a Bible scripture to say. But there is rarely any consideration given in regards to what measure of that person's lifestyle and how it aligned with the word of God, how obedient to the word of God were they in their normal everyday lives. To proclaim someone is going to heaven because they were quote unquote a good person is a risky concept because then the question becomes how good do we really have to be and what is the measuring rod used for the measure of good? True enough. Those who walk believing in God will cultivate their lives to align with the examples of Christ. They will likely be active in church. They will have a good heart, be hospitable, give to the needy, be diligent in helping the less fortunate. Because all of these things stem from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us and is a means by which a sincere faith is exalted. However, the problem is some tend to exalt the works of faith without the sincerity of faith. Faith in Jesus alone was Paul's message. What he is trying to drive home in our minds and in our soul and in our spirits is works without faith are just as dead as faith without works. Let me repeat that. Works without faith are just as dead as faith without works. Our works can never supersede our faith and we please God. Faith in God is first and foremost 
tied to obedience. So we cannot proclaim our faith rests in Jesus Christ while being comfortable with the lifestyle that engages in intentional sin, greed. It's entertained by turmoil, covetousness, jealousy, materialism, with no prayer life, never studying the word of God, and robbing God regarding tithes and offerings. When we have allowed ourselves to be comfortable in our transgressions, we are living lives comfortable in direct disobedience to the word of God. Make no mistake. Living comfortably outside of the will of God is equivalent to Paul's life before his transforming experience. We, like him as Saul, outside of the will of God, are persecuting Jesus Christ. We're making a mockery as believers. Our works from the pulpit to the parking lot mean nothing in the kingdom of God. If we're walking in disobedience to his word. Think about it this way. If you saw someone. Who every time you saw them in public. They were acting ugly. Displeasing. Rude. Arrogant. Dismissive. How willing would you be to invite that person to your house? You wouldn't. So why is it we expect God to allow us to spend eternity, eternity in his kingdom when we are comfortable living lives that are displeasing to him? In Galatians 2 and 20, Paul proclaims that he has been crucified with Christ. What Paul is conveying is When we walk in absolute faith and faith alone, we have to succumb to allowing the spirit of Christ to overtake all of who we are. In other words, who we were before receiving Christ must die. People tend to like checklists because they can measure their productiveness and reward themselves for their acts of commitment. We think, so I did this, check. I did that, check. I said this, check. I called this one, check. The problem is completing a checklist will not secure your seat in the kingdom of God. There is no checklist for faith. There is no checklist that can be established to build a sincere relationship with God. Imagine dating someone and unbeknownst to you, they have a checklist that they are checking off concerning every act that involves you. And their checklist looks like this. Dinner 10 times, check. Met parents, check. Met friends, check. Went to church with them five times, check. Bought a birthday present, check. Made them laugh 12 times, check. And now their checklist is complete. Mind you, no real conversations have transpired. No investment of time was given outside of what they deemed required to be able to check off that particular requirement on on their list. But now they come to you and say, okay, when can we schedule the wedding? 
you would look at that person as if they had lost their mind. The first thing you would say is, I don't even know you. And you don't really know me. But this is how we tend to want to approach the kingdom of God. I'm telling you today, put down the checklist. And work on building a relationship with Jesus Christ. Get to know him. Study the word of God. Learn his thoughts. Recognize and embrace his ways. Marvel and be thankful for the grace and the mercy that he extends to you each and every day. Get to know what pleases him. Get to know what makes him smile. The one thing you can trust about God is that in a relationship with him, He's not going to switch up on you. He's not going to deceive you. He's not going to embarrass you or leave you hanging. You don't have to wonder if he's really into you because he's so into you that he gave his only begotten son so that you can have the opportunity to spend eternity with him. And even better, he's forthcoming. He tells you his love language up front. And it's not complicated. It's obedience. And as his word says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It didn't say if you love me, serve on the usher board at least three times a month. That's war well and good. But have you kept my commandments? We could never do enough to please God. And our love is only exalted through our faith, which is rooted in our obedience to his word. No more, no less. Put down the checklist. Focus your heart and redirect your faith toward making God smile. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of your son Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O God, for your word. And we come before your throne asking that you forgive us, O God. Forgive us for thinking for one moment that we could ever do anything to earn a seat. Oh, thank you, Jesus. That we could ever do anything that would earn us a seat in your kingdom. Lord, shift our hearts and our minds. Oh God, let us desire to please you. Lord, we know that we'll stumble and fall. But at the root of our heart, let our desire be set on pleasing you. Lord, we give you honor. We give you praise. We say thank you, O God, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, O God, for providing us and providing for us what we don't deserve, O God. And thank you for withholding what we do deserve. 
We give you honor and praise. Amen, amen, and amen. We thank you again for tuning in to Bible Deliverance. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us online at www.bibledeliverance.org. If you are looking to partner with or join a ministry, we welcome you with open arms and invite you to begin that process on our website. If you are looking for someone to partner with you in prayer, we would love to be your prayer partner. You can also submit that request online. And if God is leading you to sow into this ministry, please again go to www.bibledeliverance.org. We stand on the principle that grass may wither and flowers may fade, but the Word of God will stand forever. Be blessed. When we receive a word from the Lord, our answer should be, Amen. Let the church say, Amen. Let the church say, Amen. Let the church say, Amen. God has spoken. So let the church Say amen. Let the church let them say amen. If you believe the word, let the whole church say amen. God has spoken. So let the church say amen lift your hands lift your hands God has spoken so let the church say amen no thank you Lord God has spoken so let the church say
from the healing of your body to the raising of the dead. No matter how you feel it or how your world is reeling, battle on through the night because you're going to win the fight. the church say lift your hands wherever you are and let the church Let the church say, let the church say.